Welcome back to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side of history, and those who lost. My name is Mark Johnston, and I am not a historian, and I'm joined here with my best friend Kevin. This episode is part two on our series titled Grandeur, which is uh, where we take some time to focus on people who feel like they have massive intrinsic value to the universe, that they find themselves to be the centerpiece of some great importance. We know that that may or may not be accurate in terms of the way that people see themselves. We, uh, we had conversations about, about the idea of uh, insanity and just like delusion in, in, the face of being of, in the face of realizing that maybe you aren't actually as important as you've convinced yourself that you are. So this week, I think we're going to jump into somebody who is undeniably important. Yes, definitely. It's going to be in some ways opposite from our last episode because this week we're talking less about a man delusional and murderous and more of a man who is saving and is actually as important and grandiose as he thinks he is. This week we're speaking about the Panic of 1907, a banking and economic panic, and the role of J.P. Morgan. Our memories can be an odd thing. Everyone has a memory of a specific traumatic event. And I'm not talking about personal events like, you know, the death of a family member or a tragic accident. We all have memories of a larger political or disaster event that seems etched into our memories. The classic example of this is the John F. Kennedy assassination, where those who are alive and old enough to remember can often tell you where they were. For people in my generation, it's definitely 9-11. I can still remember coming downstairs on the Tuesday and the TV was on and my mother was talking on the phone. Two things that never happened in the morning before school. Being on the West Coast, the first tower had already been hit. Those kind of memories become etched into our minds because they are traumatic. Ironically, the memory that is more etched in my mind is the US, uh, the space shuttle Columbia disaster when the space shuttle disintegrated on its re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. Though obviously much less of a tragedy than the September 11th attacks, I still remember exactly where I was sitting in class as we watched it as a part of our science class and being incredibly surprised and confused about what had just happened. But today we're not talking about a traumatic event like a disaster, a tornado, an earthquake, a terrorist attack. No, we're talking about something far more nebulous and spread out over time. We're talking about economic disaster, which is something that does not happen quickly. Instead of being one acute event, an economic disaster trails out over weeks, months, and years. Both Mark and I grew up and really reached adulthood right as the economy crashed in 2008. And if you go and look up the Wikipedia page of the 2008 Great Recession, you'll see a massive list of small events. Each one taken, if taken independently, would lead to nothing other than some pain and trauma for those who are related to that event. But produce enough dominoes, produce enough contagion, and you have an economic disaster. 
And today we're going to talk about a specific disaster, a disease in the economic landscape that for once had a cure and didn't develop into a full-blown epidemic and meltdown of the American economy. And we're going to speak about J.P. Morgan and his role in avoiding that conflict. Yet of all places, we're going to start in Montana. And that's kind of an odd place to start for an economic disaster that entirely happens in New York City. Our listeners from Montana hopefully aren't that surprised, but... Do they get podcasts in Montana? I think so. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to start in Butte, Montana, in copper mines. Again, not an expected place to begin. It's not quite the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Not at all. But that is where a man by the name of Augustus Heinz, his name was probably pronounced Heinze, but I'm going to go with Heinz because he was an American at this point. He was a German engineer who became a copper magnate. He was well-loved because he gave his workers an eight-hour day. He gave them weekends off. He paid them better. He was absolutely guileless. He would take... uh, any of his competitors to court, and he would basically tie them up in litigation so he could buy their copper mines from them because he had more money than they did, and he was preventing them from working or making them pay their lawyers too much money. But this man, Augustus Hines, created this massive copper empire and went toe-to-toe with John D. Rockefeller, the biggest industrialist that has ever existed, the richest man to have ever existed, and Augustus Hines won. He used this very specific law called the Apex Law. Basically, he would buy land where he thought there might be copper, and he would mine out in every direction, kind of like an octopus, just sending little tendrils of copper shafts in every direction, looking to get the seams that would just develop in the rock. But he would basically intersect with other people's mines. I mean, this is like something out of Minecraft. And when he found their copper, he would declare that it was his, because his copper mine started on his land. Whatever his copper mine touches, if it starts on his land, that's his. Mm. This was a real law, and this is what he used to buy out his competitors and develop this massive empire and become very popular in Montana. He was very good at making money. Eventually, he became a multimillionaire from this. He set up his own banks. He bought up mines all over the West, uh, the Mountain West, Nevada, Idaho, places like that. And you think copper, what's so important about copper? Well, copper is used in telegraph wires. It's used in telephone wires. And these were massively expanding uh, technologies at this point in history. He's doing this in the late 1890s. Well, after fighting and fighting and fighting and winning his empire, he does begin to lose. And he gets bought out by his competitors for $12 million. At this time in history, a lot of money at that point. $12 million is a massive sum. So what does a aggressive, intelligent, well-loved businessman do with $12 million? Is he going to Disneyland? I think he's going to his version of Disneyland. Capitalism land? He's going to capitalism Ah, land. Ah, capitalism land. He's going straight to New York City. Oh, that is capitalism land. Straight to the New York Stock Exchange and Wall Street, and he's becoming an investment banker. That's the Matterhorn of capitalism land. It's even got... Really big mountains. This episode brought to you by Capitalism Land. The worst theme park of all time. It's very expensive and there's a lot of competition. 
fast passes cost money. Yes. <laughs> so dumb. That, that's funny, though. It is funny, but it's dumb. That's a dumb joke. I've tried to give Heinz the reputation, just in the way I'm describing him, of being uh, a very shrewd man. His lit- litigious nature in Montana made him beloved by the common working man, but anyone in higher society or that came from money absolutely hated him because Heinz played very dirty in business. So it's not surprising when he comes to New York City that he immediately hooks himself up with what you could euphemistically call colorful characters. Specifically, he sets himself up with a man named Charles W. Morse. And Morse has one of the coolest nicknames for a businessman. He was called the Ice King. Good Lord. And it's way more direct of a name than you think. Does he sell ice? Yes. Ah, quality. So before refrigeration. So it's, not, it's not that good of a name then. That's like the Mattress King, but the Ice King. I don't know. It just brings up like Batman supervillains to me. Mm. But... He literally monopolized the ice industry, which before refrigeration exists, you need to keep things cool with ice. Well, Charles W. Morse, Morse, he went to Maine, which is where he was from, and there's lots of ice in Maine, especially in the winter, and he owned steamboats first that just moved cargo back and forth, and he would uh, chop into the rivers and just take huge chunks of ice, put them on a steamboat, insulate them as well as he could, bring them to New York City, and sell them. And through some pretty shady business tactics, aka outright corruption, through the political bosses of the time, he became fabulously wealthy in this ice industry. Now, if any of us remember, in the last episode about the assassination of James Garfield and Charles Guiteau, we remember that the way the country used to run was through political patronage and basically petty corruption. Well, Charles Morris was a part of that. He was given patronage by the Tammany Hall um, leadership in New York City, which was a massive Irish immigrant run, basically like the mob, that would simply give him the privileges to be the only ice ice trader, and he became wealthy that way. Did they ice his competition? They actually probably beat people up. Ah, and then stole the mice for the swelling. Exactly. See, it, it's a twofer. <laughs> what these two do together is something that just screams bad idea, in my opinion. But what they would do is they would take their initial fortunes and they would buy seats on a bank's um, board of directors or board of trustees. And they would then take control of that bank by buying enough stock or influence or by buying enough positions for their partners and cronies. So they would control the boards of these banks. And these two guys, Morse and Heinz, would then use their collateral from those banks, basically buy loans from themselves, and use those loans to buy another bank. And then they would do the same thing with that bank. They would take their influence in that bank and use it to basically give themselves loans from their own bank to buy another bank. This is leveraging debt, which works if the economy is improving, which it was at that time. Obviously, though, there's some inherent risk underlying there, which is if if the banks struggle, they're doomed. Remember this. Through this process of buying up a bank's 
ownership and then leveraging that bank, they create this vast network of, I think, about a dozen banks in New York City and you know, Brooklyn and places like that, which at this point had just joined New York City as another borough. And they just have this mini empire going on. To add to the party, Augustus Hines' two brothers, Otto and Arthur, open up a brokerage firm to allow Augustus to trade in the stock market. And Augustus forms his own company called the United Copper Company with all of his other mines outside of Montana, all the ones in Montana being bought up by the other rich people in Montana, literally a company called the Anaconda Mining Company, which is kind of a cool name for a company. So he has this small copper company. His brothers are his brokers. Those are the ones who buy and sell stocks. He owns, with his cronies, about 12 banks. He seems like he's in a powerful and commanding position. Seems to be the case. So why is this guy important? Well, it's actually not him. But we need to know about him to know why his brother, Otto Hines, of the Hines brokerage firm, decides to do what he decides to do. Is Otto the villain of this story? We'll see. Kind of. We'll see. Kind of. We can lift this, but it, Otto sounds like a villain. So in comes Otto Hines. He's like his brother, just far less successful. Not much is known about him. This isn't a guy who we have primary sources for. We don't have his letters. He, he didn't have interviews in the newspaper. He's remembered in history as someone very much on the wrong side of history. Because what he decides to do is something that will require us to dive into economics a little bit. He tries to do what's called a short squeeze on his own company, the United Copper Company, sometimes also called much cooler, a bear squeeze. And this is something that Otto Hines wants to do as a way to quickly make a lot of money by artificially manipulating the stock value of the United Copper Company that his brother had created and that he had been trading the stock in as a partner in this. They're all working together. So here's the scheme. The Heinzes had sent people to what was called the American Stock Exchange, which was literally a group of people trading stocks on a street corner. This isn't the New York Stock Exchange, which has a nice building, people in nice suits, and like tickers and things like that. No, these are a bunch of guys standing on the street corner holding little certificates that would give people stock in a variety of companies. These are basically companies that can't get on the real stock exchange. They call this trading on the curb, which is something they still call the stock exchange. Interesting. So, I mean... I didn't, I didn't know that there was, like, a farm league for stocks. It's AAA for the New York Stock Exchange. Huh. But that's where the United Copper Company was traded, because it was not a big, well-known company. It's a very new company. We're talking, like, a year old. So the Heinzes send out their agents, and they're trying to see what's going on with their stocks. Copper as a, a entity, the copper as a material, was crashing in price it had halved in price so the united copper company is struggling which is probably the reason why they wanted to do this in the first place but they see on the stock exchange that there's a lot of stock being sold for their company normally that's a good thing but they're seeing that more stock is being sold from the company than actually exists concerning that's not great what that means in stock market terms is that people are buying the stock to sell it short. When a typical stock is bought, when most people buy stocks, they buy it for what's called buying it long. 
And they, you buy the stock at a low price, and you wait over a long period of time as that stock increases in price. You sell it high, and you get the difference between the low initial purchase and the higher future selling. Selling short's the exact opposite. It requires a loan. Basically, if I wanted to buy a stock of a company, and I thought that company was going to lose value, I am going to pay a broker to get that stock for me, basically as a loan. Either pay them money, or I just go and ask them for the stock. And they sell me that stock, or give me that stock immediately. And they say, later, pay me back for that stock. You need to get that stock and give it back to me, the broker. So I go and I get the stock from the broker who expects me to pay them back later. And then I sell the stock instantly. And I sell for whatever value it's at. So that later, if the stock market plummets, I then go out and you buy, buy the, the stock. stock. back for a lower price, give it back to the broker, and pocket the difference. And pocket the difference. Economics. Economics. Capitalism land. But in capitalism land, that actually works. What it does is it allows for... Um, it helps to prevent bubbles, basically. It prevents companies from overinflating in value because as a company starts to get what most people seem is too expensive to be overpriced, people are going to come in and start to buy it, to sell it short. So it's actually a good thing, even though it's betting against somebody. Well, the Heinz's, the Heinz brothers see this overly high number of their stock certificates, and they assume that because copper has decreased in price, because the value of their stock is probably going to go down, most of the people that own their stocks are going to be selling short. And not only that, if they can buy enough of their own stock and own the actual stock, they can force those people selling short to buy the stock from them. If no one else on the market has that stock except for the Heinz brothers and their cronies, they can make the people who are selling short purchase the stock at whatever price they want. They can make a fortune. And that's why it's called a squeeze, because the shorts are all squeezed to go find the stock. And there's not enough available, they're forced to buy, pay huge prices. The problem is, to purchase all of their own stock, they own a bunch, but they don't own it all, to purchase their own stock, they need a massive amount of money. And where are they going to get that massive amount of money? Well, they kind of meet together. They try to raise it on their own, and they realize they can't. And then they meet with another guy, um, a major banker. This guy is more important. He's by the name of Charles T. Barney. Barney is a part of the established banking elite. This isn't a, you know, back alley businessman. This is a major player. He's well known, and he owns this trust company, which I'll get into later, called the Knickerbocker Trust. Like, that's the most New York business I've ever heard. When they, the Heinz brothers and Charles Morse approach him, Barney tells them they have nowhere near enough money. This is not going to work. Don't even try it. No good can come of this. Nothing. He tells this to them on either Saturday night or like Sunday afternoon on the weekend when there's no trading happening. Like right after the stock market closes on an early Saturday. That's when the Heinz brothers on a Saturday kind of learn, we probably can do this squeeze if we have enough money. The Heinz brothers ignore him. But in talking with him, Barney becomes associated with this squeeze. And that's all, that is incredibly important to remember down the line. So Monday, the 14th of October, seems stock, bad things in the stock market always happen in October. Monday, the 14th of October, 1907, rolls around, and the Heinzes begin their short squeeze. They begin to buy up as much stock as they can. 
they have 20 brokerages, all being led by the Heinz brokerage, buying every single stock and just handing it straight to them, just constantly, all day. Their stock of United Copper, which is, again, the company they're using, its value goes up from $40 to about $60 a share. So they increased their value by 50%. It was $23 increase on one day. That's huge numbers. At the end of trading on that one day that they poured all of their money into this, only like eight hours, it's looking like it's going to work. So the next morning rolls around. And what they do is they decide to what's called call in their margins or call in their stocks. They immediately go to the brokers and say, I want my stocks now. They're mine. I loan them to you. It's all a large loaning situation. I want them now. You need to force whoever you are loaning those stocks to, force whoever owns your stocks, and give them to us now. And their expectation is those brokers, brokers were going to struggle to give them the stocks. They were going to mm-hmm. really not be able to produce them. Or if they could produce them, it would take too long. And since the value had increased so fast, some of these guys selling short were losing thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, potentially, if the Heinz brothers are right. Not only can they, these brokers produce the stock, they don't even have a problem producing it. The Heinz brothers could not buy enough of their stock to create that scarcity. What likely happened, and I only found this in one source, is the Heinz brothers couldn't buy up enough of it, for one, and two, they misinterpreted uh, how much stock they actually had and a lot of their stock had probably been bought up a long time ago, right when Augustus Hines had been bought out in Montana. Because right after he does that, he forms the United Copper Company and takes his $12 million to New York City. Well, the people he'd been competing against and using the Apex Law and using the litigation against, they all bought his stock and waited. Mm. And they just waited for him to do something so they could ruin him. So I guess you could say it did catch up to Hines. That might rank as the best pun I've ever heard. I'll be right back, everybody. I'm taking a victory lap. <laughs> ah, that was a good joke. <laughs> I was just in my head for like 15 minutes. I was like, when do I get to drop this amazing, this amazing catch-up joke? <laughs> so Heinz's past likely catch up, catches up to him. We don't know this for sure. I mean, again, there's no real reference to it, but that kind of explains to me why this scheme collapses on him. Not only can these brokerage firms produce the stock, they flood the market. That's really bad for United Copper. Because what that proves is two things. One, the Heinz brothers were doing a short squeeze. People don't like that. Right. People don't like their stocks being that aggressively manipulated due to the greed of the people in charge. The Heinz brothers, Charles Morse, the ones who are... Integrates integrates faith in the company Mm -hmm. that they're buying stocks in. And integrates faith in the the men themselves. They become completely disgraced. Which, again, no one would care about, except the economy's really not that stable right now. So the first thing, again, is the Heinz brothers are disgraced. The second thing is this kind of destroys United Copper. It completely crashes the market for a day. Because people begin to realize that there's an unhealthy error around the American Stock Exchange. And like I was saying, it's not that it would be that important if it was just these men doing this greedy scheme and failing. They would have been removed from any place of banking importance, and then no one would care. But recent events 
had made it so the economy had a big issue. And without explaining these things first, none of the next events, we haven't even started talking about Morgan yet, start to make any sense. In California, which is where we are, we are acutely aware of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And believe it or not, that actually has a huge impact on this story because the San Francisco earthquake absolutely leveled that city just a year before all these events. And the amount of insurance claims that had been put into action because buildings had collapsed and there was earthquake and fire insurance and all that had drained cash out of the market. There just simply wasn't a lot of money. At this point, money is directly translatable to gold. Literally, you trade in gold. That's how you backed your money. With all these different insurance claims, money was pouring away from the stock exchange and from the banking system to make sure these insurance claims were paid for. At the same time, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is trying to break apart a bunch of big businesses. So all the banks were tentative to uh, lend because there's a good chance that a lot of their investments are going to get broken down by the government. And it seems small, but the fact that it was October meant that there was even less money, just money floating around, which we would call liquidity, liquid money, the ability to buy and sell things easily. There was even less money because it was harvest time. Mm. That's why we have Halloween when it is, because it's harvest time, and then there's Thanksgiving right afterwards. That's when farmers who had been buying everything on credit, I will pay you this when I have my goods, they're all selling everything to the market. Well, who they sell it to is flooding them, is basically losing all its cash as well. Mm -hmm. So you get these big negative cash flow problems. And to think about this, you got to remember that wealth comes in various forms. You convert wealth. Cash is just one form of wealth, and it's the easiest to convert to something else. I want a good, I want a service, here's a dollar. Well, when there's no dollars, and all those dollars are locked into, I owe this person this much, and I have this much interest on this loan, and I have these backed securities in my bank vault, if a problem happens in the economy, there's no way to forestall those issues. No one's equipped to deal with it immediately. Yeah, no one has the money to save themselves. When the Heinz scheme collapses, every bank that they are associated with basically becomes a disease. People who have money in their banks, have deposited money in their banks, use those banks as an investment location, they panic. Mm -hmm. Hence the name Panic of 1907. They immediately panic and go, we got to get our money away from these guys because who knows what they're doing with our money. Yeah, yeah. Who knows, who knows if that money's still there? Maybe it was part of this squeeze. Like, yeah. It definitely was. Everyone knows their money's being used for this. They got to get out. They l rush the bank. It's called a bank run. Bank runs don't happen as much anymore because nowadays banks have what is called the FDIC insurance, so um, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insurance program. So if a bank collapses, the depositors, the investors in the bank get their money back. That doesn't exist until the Great Depression. This is before the Great Depression. So if someone's bank collapses and fails, the bank goes bankrupt, which literally means the bank explodes mm -hmm. in Latin, their money's gone. Their life earnings are gone. The profits of their business are gone. So when people are panicking, there's a reason to panic. This isn't just greed. This isn't just, oh, an insignificant loss of money. This is their entire livelihood being gone. So late in that week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 
there's panic at these banks. And what really set it off was when Heinz's bank in Montana, which he had used to funnel the money through for his entire scheme, it collapses first. And that's when people really realize, the investors realize that something's wrong in these banks. Not only has the scheme happened, but Heinz's bank fails. They, they knew they were probably involved, but it wasn't proven until that happened. That's how they're like, it was you. Mm-hmm. You're the problem. And it shows the, the reach of the, of, the, of the consequences. His bank in Montana is the first one to go down in, in this situation. The New York ones are only a matter of time. So now we can kind of, uh, now we can put ourselves into the shoes of of some of the people involved and try to start to think psychologically about what's happening in the situation. First is put yourself in the shoes of Charles T. Barney. He probably gave money to this scheme. Not much. He, He was, he gave counsel to them, but he's sitting in his very large townhouse or mansion and watching these things unfold, hoping that he's not associated with it. Put yourself in the shoes of an investor standing in lines that snake out six blocks away from the Mercantile National Bank of Augustus Hines, knowing that if you don't get to the teller and you don't take out your cash, it's gone. Or one of the many bank presidents who's watching this very closely and wondering just how much deposit they have in their bank vaults. Remember, banks don't carry 100% of the cash on hand. It's usually way lower, 20% or less. But it's not full panic yet. Any bank associated with Morse or Heinz gets run on, and those banks collapse. And all of that money gets sent to other banks. Okay, it seems like an isolated problem. One person with a disease. No one's too scared yet. However. However. There it is. Somewhere along the line, the public gets knowledge that Charles T. Barney was associated with the squeeze. Now we have a bigger problem because this is not just some high-flying investment banker, some young gun. This is an older man who's been in the banking system for decades, who's well-respected, well-connected. His, you know, his children are married to other important banking families, that kind of connection that you get in high society. And the kind of connections that foster the trust necessary for banks to function. And then the big thing with economic calamities is when people lose trust in the economic system, the economic system fails. You have to trust that if you give money to a bank, the bank is not going to lose that money. Once Charles D. Barney gets himself associated, his trust company the Knickerbocker Trust Company, which is a form of bank, it gets run on. A bank run begins. Now, a trust company is something that is an ultimate footnote in history. You will open any history textbook and you see them chapters with paragraphs complaining about the trusts. They were these illegal fictions used to produce uh, monopolies. John D. Rockefeller, the richest human being to have ever lived, used them to produce his standard oil monopoly. He was the first guy to create a trust. And what a trust is, is it's a way to circumvent the earliest anti-monopoly laws. Monopolies are bad, and that's when one company controls the entirety of a market, in this case oil, because if, if I control the world's supply of literally anything, I can then 
price it however I want. Well, various governments fought John D. Rockefeller against this, and what he did was he took his various companies and he took boards of directors from each one and basically made them part of a trust, which was just a group of people that all met together. But they, those trust board members were paid in stock from those other companies. So the trust controls the stocks for the other companies, functionally controlling them too. Mm-hmm. And then the banks produced a trust, and then the copper people produced a trust. Iron produced a trust. There was a massive steel trust. The, the entire country was run by trusts. But it took a little bit of evolution to produce trusts as m- pretty much uh, poorly regulated banks by this time in history. They didn't need to have a large deposit in their vaults, for example. So when a normal bank has certain, a normal bank being like a private bank, a national bank, a state bank, those are the three types of banks. They all had specific rules and regulations. They'd have a certain amount of money in their bank vaults. They, they couldn't do certain kinds of trading. They could only participate in some investments, not in others. Trusts had n- almost no regulation. So most of these trusts have like 3 to 5% of their income actually on hand. So when the Knickerbocker Trust gets run on, it's in much greater danger of collapsing. So far, we've talked about a group of men who've attempted to gamble and lost. But this is a series about those who have an extra sense of importance and whether or not that is warranted. And these men, the Heinz brothers and Charles Morse and Charles T. Barney, from here on out are removed from the story. They are all disgraced. They all lose their fortunes. And most of them end their lives rather soon after this. Including Barney, whose biggest crime here was taking a meeting to tell them not to do something. Charles T. Barney, within three weeks, shoots himself in the stomach with a pistol. Wow. He was not personally ruined, financially at least, but his influence and his standing in the community, the banking community, was gone. Right now, in our story, the Knickerbocker Trust Company is in the process of collapsing. Otto Hines vanishes from history completely. Once his role in the scheme is over, he is never mentioned again in any of the sources I've read. Whereas Augustus Hines, again personally ruined, basically drinks himself to death and dies seven years later of cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. Charles W. Morris is probably the one who ends up the best, and he attempts to get back into the market a couple more times and dies like 30 years later, but never again reached his level of important influence or wealth. These men are simply greedy businessmen. They are not the kind of man we're speaking about. But the man we're speaking about is J.P. Morgan, and he's in Richmond, Virginia at an Episcopalian conference while all this is happening. He's out at a church meeting. He's missing some stuff. He's missing some stuff. Now, remember, people aren't aware that this is going to be a full-blown panic. Just there's some bank runs going on. Sadly, that wasn't that rare. There is a panic of, insert year here, about every 15 years. There are always random prime numbers, too. There's a panic of 1907, a panic of 1893, a panic of 1857, a panic of 1873. Just this list of numbers. that there were all prime numbers? With bank runs? I don't know if they're all prime numbers, oh, but there's man. a lot of them. I was gonna, I was gonna be really happy to lean into the, uh, the very conspiratorial side of it, just be like, next up on ancient aliens. Regardless, when this happens, people have 
in the banking community had already learned that J.P. Morgan could be the man to stop it because he, more or less single-handedly and using his influence, stopped the last big panic of 1893. He had already done this before. There was a massive run on banks. There was a lack of money in the system. The economy, the economy was crashing completely, and J.P. Morgan stepped up and solved the problem. So everybody immediately goes, where's Morgan? He's at a conference. He's sitting in a church pew. And right now, his underlings, very intelligent and capable underlings, mm -hmm. are trying to figure out the problem. Uh, at the request of the New York Clearinghouse, which is like the closest thing they had to a reserve bank in New York City, which is basically a group of banks that would all agree to honor each other's certificates. Basically, one bank could lend through the other banks. It made a, a bank network. They are saying, Knickerbocker Trust Company, you're doomed. But when you look at your books, so they take one of um, Morgan's underlings, named a guy named Benjamin Strong, who is actually really important later on in banking history, but not important for us beyond that. He looks at the Knickerbocker Trust Company's, uh, their assets to debt ratio, that kind of stuff, and they're doomed. They have been leveraged to death. They are going to collapse. Everyone's going to lose their money. Okay. It seems like once all of the guys now that have been associated, all their banks are struggling, we're okay. Morgan decides to co come home, though, over that weekend. Because something is happening in New York, and another company gets associated with this thing that's going on, and it's called the Trust Company of America, which is the most boring name for a trust company I can yeah, think of. It's pretty bad, especially in a world where Knickerbocker was an option. Yeah. They have a tangential relationship to Charles T. Barney, and they're not the only company that's struggling. There's a lot of banks and trusts that are being having bank runs on them right now. Um, but this company, it's a it's a much bigger player. And it doesn't have enough of a relationship to these guys for it to be tarnished by their reputations. The New York Clearinghouse decides to have Benjamin Strong check out their assets to debt ratio, look at their books, basically. And they're fine. They're actually solvent. They're, they're going to survive if they're given cash that has to be the thing so basically they just need to be able to survive whatever run comes yeah and as long as they can do that they're okay they're okay whereas the knickerbocker trust it doesn't matter they were going to go under anyway mm -hmm. they the scheme doomed them what ends up happening happening is the president of that trust company starts begging for aid he's like if i don't get help i'm going to collapse if i collapse all of you will likely collapse too Sounds panic-inducing. It is. Yeah, I thought, I thought that might be the case. Well, Morgan had rushed home on a special single-carriage uh, train, very similar to the single-carriage train that Garfield was sent on to uh, his home right before he died from our last episode. So apparently important people get their own train. Yeah, it's like the Air Force One of trains. Pretty much. So he rushes Lo home. Locomotion One. I like that. He rushes home, and he meets with the the president of the trust company and he agrees to help him after meeting with the guy he agrees morgan agrees to bail him out with his own money and the way he does it is just the, like the most classic monopoly businessman um, this is a quote from the best source that i have on this the best source on the bank of 1907 which is by 
Robert Bruner and Sean Carr. So Bruner and Carr is how it's referred to. It's the only real comprehensive source on this. And they they describe Morgan as literally filling sacks with cash. We're talking burlap bags, like something from an old-fashioned bank robbery with like little dollar signs on the sack and literally having just a train of guys running these sacks of cash to the trust company so they could give those deposits out, out to the investors in this massive line that's, again, snaking blocks. So many people had crammed into the Trust Company of America that people were getting, like, squished into the various comfy seats and fancy-looking foyer of this building. And so the only way to solve that problem is just keep throwing money at it. They walked $3 million of cash in these bags just to keep the doors of the Trust Company of America open until 3 p.m. when they naturally closed. They normally closed. And it saves the Trust Company for a day. Everyone adjourns to Morgan's Library. Now, Morgan's Library is a famous place. It's not just a building, you know, with books in it. It's basically a giant set of conference rooms, one of which was Morgan's personal library, which is massive. Very, very wealthy man, very influential man. He was used to sitting back and having people come to him and speak with him and needing things from him and having lots of his uh, advisors which was actually a very small group of men, probably like four, five, six guys that he would work with who would make decisions that would impact millions of people. But they all go back to Morgan's library. Morgan and a few of the other major bank presidents that he trusts. Um, the two guys that I'll occasionally mention, a guy by the last name Stillman, another guy named Baker. These are his main lieutenants. These guys control their own banking empires, but they are subordinate, just like everybody else is, to J.P. Morgan. Morgan is really sick. He is, um, he hasn't slept much, but the problem's not over yet. They know that the Trust Company of America opens again the next day. And is going to have that exact same line. Exact same problem. People are still trying to get their money out. There's no reason for people not to. There needs to be an active solution to the problem. That's what Morgan and his lieutenants are trying to do. So what he does is he calls in as many bank and trust company presidents as he can the heads of all of these basic banking institutions. He brings them into his library, and he tells them, I need money. Now, mind you, this isn't free money. These are loans. These people are, these bank presidents are going to make money off of these bailouts. That's something to remember. He's, he has, I think it's a group of like 20 guys in his library, and he says, I need you to give me money. And he says, if I give you money, I've been promised by the Secretary of the Treasury that he will make sure you get money. If you give money to this situation, even the government, which is much weaker at this point in history, will support you. They refuse. They refuse without the government promise. They refused with it. And so Morgan decides to take things up a notch. There's that issue of trust we were talking about. They didn't trust their bailout would end the issue. They don't care about the Trust Company of America. In their minds, Trust Company of America is a weak entity. It should fail. It was associated with this. It can't handle this run. Their banks can, which is not true. Right, but their banks not, their banks are not currently experiencing the run and therefore could totally survive it. So Morgan reverts to his best possible tactic. And to give you some context, J.P. Morgan is a big man. I don't think he was particularly tall, but he was wide. And I mean that in the sense of he was broad-shouldered, 
with a massive, um, you know, massive boned man, just a big, burly, intense guy. He talked loudly. He talked brusquely. He talked rarely. He spoke few words, but when he said something, it was a command, period. He had a massive nose that due to a variety of um, skin illnesses that he'd had since a little kid made his nose big and purple and like all sorts of little bumps on it. He was very self-conscious about that, but he was able to use it to, to his advantage. This is a man that's not going to let something like that affect him. So he's an intimidating man and a powerful man and a brilliant man. And so he come, he's standing, or maybe even sitting, in this library surrounded by trust presidents. He simply starts to point at them and demands that they help him. Points at a guy, what are you going to give to me? Nothing. Okay, how about you? How about you? How about you? How about you? Finally, he points at one of his lieutenants. He goes, what are you going to give? The guy goes, two million or some, it was a big number. And he goes, fine. Points back at the first guy, what are you going to give? Two million. And then he goes around and points at them all again. And they all give the same amount. Right. And they develop a big fund. Um, it's probably less than two million because in the end, it's only like eight and a, half, eight and a quarter million that they, that they raise. And they raise it at midnight. Remember, the trust company closed at 3 o'clock. And they took they reopen them, at 8. And it reopens at like 7, 8 o'clock, whatever. Yeah. And they had to raise that money that night. So they just sat in that, in that library for hours and hours until, until Morgan had the money he needed. The next morning arrives, and the president of the Trust Company of America comes rushing back in person to Morgan, and he says that he has received nothing. The Trust Company presidents and the bank presidents had reneged on their agreement. Not a good start to your day. Morgan turns to his subordinate or his lieutenant Stillman says I need you to bail them out for me alone and Stillman without really even questioning mm -hmm. does it and they kind of do the same rush to support this trust just running sacks of money to the uh, to the trust yep and the trust company of America starts to do some funny things at Morgan's direction in order to technically be open they close all of their teller windows, but like one. Mm, just to slow they the amount slow. of money that can come out. They slow down to an absolute crawl. Um, just little tactics like that. They make it difficult to get in the bank. And all sorts of little things, but it, it survives again. But in the process, Morgan heads to the Trust Company of America to try to basically be there in person. Because... He knows what needs to happen is people need to see something that gives them confidence. Project strength. Project strength. He is not a guy that likes the public eye. He's uncomfortable being seen. When he decides to travel to downtown and make his presence known, people take notice. We get a interesting quote about him arriving in downtown from his son-in-law, who is our only real primary source for this whole event, which I'm going to read real quick because it gives, a, gives us a good idea of how people saw him in this moment. All the way downtown, people who got a glimpse of him in the cab called the attention of passerby. Policemen and cabbies who knew him well by sight shouted, there goes the old man, or there goes the big chief. And the people who heard them understood to whom they referred and ran behind the cab to get a peep at him. Near Trinity Church, a way through the crowd opened as soon as it was realized who was in the cab. 
The crowd moved with us. The man speaking's in the cap, too. He might have been a general at the head of a column going to the relief of a beleaguered city. Such, as, such was the enthusiasm he created. All this time, he looked straight ahead and gave no sign of noticing the excitement. But it was evident that he was pleased. And he's in what's called a broom, which is an old-school carriage. There's horses leading this, and it's this beautiful, like, classy personal carriage that he has. And when people realize it's him, they're like, oh, the day is saved. Yeah. He's, he's he comes the to save everything. Yeah. Exactly. Which is something you can tell that J.P. Morgan liked. He's, he's a behind-the-scenes kind of guy, but to have that power and use it, and use it properly. To be able to wield it for both good and a profit. Yeah. Everything he does here, he makes a profit out of. Oh, of course. Everything the bankers are doing, they're making a profit out of. In capitalism land. Exactly. They do save the trust company of America that day. It takes multiple money pools. While arriving in downtown, the stock exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, not the American Stock Exchange, the real big one that actually has a building. The indoor one. The indoor stock exchange. Um, Its president announces that they are likely going to have to close the stock exchange early. That's a very bad sign. When the stock exchange closes early, um, that in itself oftentimes causes panic because it locks money in place. It, it produces a crisis of confidence. Morgan basically screams at the guy, if you do that, we're all, we're all done. Right. Um, Once again, project confidence. But the stock exchange is like, we, we can't get any money. The trusts and bank companies, their presidents, they're, they're not allowing their banks to loan money out. Without there being cash, no one can buy or sell their stocks. And if all the stocks are collapsing at once and no one can sell their stocks, everyone's losing all their money. So they all run to the banks to get their money out of the banks. And then the banks won't loan money because they don't have any money. So they have to perpetuate the price, the, the price collapse, which makes more people take their money out, which makes more stocks collapse, which makes the whole thing spiral. So Morgan gathers another loan together. He rushes back to his office, gets another loan together, and they stop the stock market from closing. They save the trust company. And Morgan actually puts together another group of man- guys to deal with the press, deal with the, the public. And they actually try to handle that in two ways, which is kind of weird. They meet up with the press and they tell the reporters, if people just keep their money in the banks, it'll be fine. It's one of J.P. Morgan's only meetings meetings with the press ever it's him going to a reporter normally they'd have to chase him down one of the pictures you'll see if you look at morgan is him trying to beat a reporter with his cane he hates reporters okay (laughs) so morgan going up to a reporter and saying i need to speak with you because i have a message for you this is when he was back in downtown and he says if people keep their money in the banks will be fine it'll be okay and they also sent another group of bankers to meet up with a variety of priests and deacons and pastors to speak on Sunday. This is Saturday when all this is happening. Oh, sorry, this is Friday when all this is happening. Speak on Sunday and tell their parishioners to calm down. It's going to be okay. But it, 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 it only works to such an extent. That it, weekend. It, it worked as much as it possibly could considering it was coming from him. But still. Still. After a day and a half of nonstop work, practically not sleeping, with a horrible cold, at one point in one of these meetings, Morgan actually falls asleep during the arguments for like three hours and wakes up and immediately starts ordering them around again. Morgan goes up to his library, plays a game of solitaire, which he did every night, and goes to sleep hoping, hoping that this problem has been solved on Friday night. 
instantly the next morning, the mayor of New York City comes up to him and says, New York City is broke. We can't pay anybody. We haven't been able to get money for any bond measures. We haven't been able to get loans for a year since basically the San Francisco earthquake. And Morgan knows, oh, if this, if the city itself collapses, that's another big problem. And this could have been so much bigger of an issue, but he takes out his pen, and as Brunner and Carr say, with the flourish of his pen, J.P. Morgan had thus vanquished the financial threat to the city of New York. He basically personally gives him a massive loan, solves that problem, gone. It was in like a 20-minute meeting, and he gives multi-millions of dollars to a city mm-hmm. and bails out the city. He, he's... He swings. This is uh, this is crazy. He was in his own time, known as a man of action. This isn't a guy that's going to sit back and watch things proceed as they will. He's going to make things happen. So on Saturday, it's obvious that on Monday of the next week, these problems will commence, and we are reaching the climax of this story. Already, Morgan has proven himself adept at handling the situation. Remember, he's already done it once. It's good to have some knowledge of how to solve an economic economic crisis. What he decides to do is to gather as many bank presidents and trust company presidents, who are often the same person, into his library at once. And what ends up really happening is they kind of start to show up on their own. He never at any real point says, like, I need you to come. They all just, they all just go to him. They know that's where they should be. The scene outside of his library, think of those big, massive stone facades in New York City, those massive buildings that are all around um, downtown or probably like midtown Manhattan or something. There are cars of the, you know, the fanciest cars you can think of in 1907, which is just a car itself because no one has a car, and carriages drawn by horses. Oddly enough, not anachronistically mingled together. Because this is the only time in history where you can have people traveling in coaches and in cars at the same time. And they're all just lined up outside of his library, outside on the street. And there's just this massive amount of people rushing to go see him. There's reporters swarming outside on a Saturday, just waiting to see what is happening inside. What's happening? The building is just like an obvious display of influence and power at that point. And they're there for one man. One man who's already actively bailing out everyone Mm -hmm. he's bailed out a city he's bailed out the biggest stock market a second biggest stock market in the world and he's bailed out a massive institution three times and it explains why he's pulling people into these office into these meetings to go what are you going to give because he knows when, when when like a trust when a trust is is on the verge of failing he needs other people to step in to help because when the city's failing, he still needs to have some 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 liquid uh, cash to be able to move around for that kind of thing. Exactly. That's crazy. On Saturday, once all these executives, think of them that way, banking executives, meet in Morgan's library, by the late afternoon, it's about 120 major bankers. Two main problems present themselves, and these both need to be solved by Monday morning. The first problem we've already discussed, the Trust Company of America is going to collapse, and then a few other trusts have now basically got into the same situation. They haven't received the same level of aid, but they were in a more sound financial footing, but they're collapsing too. So there's a variety of what were thought of as the weaker trusts are collapsing, and they need to be helped. The second problem 
is a little bit more complex, but not, not too much. There was a brokerage firm, a major brokerage firm called the Moore & Schley Brokerage Firm, and they had used this company called the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, the TCNI. They'd used this railroad and steel company to buy a bunch of bad loans, basically. They had leveraged heavily their stock of this railroad company that's located in Alabama, Tennessee River Valley, to make a bunch of bad bets, and they were going to collapse. And it's another one of those things where if you have just that happening, it's not a big deal, but they're a massive brokerage. They're like the third largest or something like that. If they collapse, it's going to collapse the stock market on Monday. So you have these weak trusts collapsing, and you have this brokerage firm collapsing. So what is Morgan going to do? Well, he literally divides up the bankers. He puts some in his West Room. They're going to handle the bailout. And he kind of puts them in there and says, figure it out. I'm kind of done with you. You've already kind of backstabbed me. You, you, you know what you need to do. Figure it out. I will be in here in a second after I figure out the East Room. The East Room is everybody in a smaller group that's worrying about the, uh, the brokerage firm and the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company. He literally shoves them in that room and just says, figure it out. And he actually goes to a center room, which is his library. It's in the middle of these two wings. And he just grabs his closest confidants. I think there's only like five or six men in that room. And they try to figure out what to do. They come up with an interesting plan. In this day and age, in 1907, one company controls pretty much all the steel and railroads in the country. We're talking 60% or so of the industry. And that's Andrew Carnegie's U.S. Steel Corporation. He's no longer a part of it, but it's the corporation he produced. They have a true monopoly over anything shiny and silvery. The political climate was not okay with making that company bigger. But the only solution that the men around Morgan can come up with, this is the one instance where Morgan does not come up with this idea, where the men around Morgan think they can solve this problem is, well, the only way to save the brokerage firm is to save that TCNI company. The TCNI company was not highly valued. That's the reason the brokerage company is in trouble. They didn't have a very good product. They had logistic issues. They, everyone thought that they were doomed. Well, Morgan sends Benjamin Strong again to go and look at the books of the TCNI. They bring those books in, and Morgan and his confidants, they look up at this company and say, how valuable is this company? Could we actually purchase them? And then... If a big company purchases that little company, the stock of that little company becomes much more valuable. The brokerage firm is saved because their investment now has a real footing, not a fake footing. They've basically been buying their own stocks and inflating the value of their own stocks. Try to keep it afloat. To keep it afloat. And so you have to provide a backing. Well, just subsume that TCNI into U.S. Steel. Problem solved. Well, they said that'll only work if TCNI is an okay company, and no one thought it was. They check its books. It's actually fine. And it's a huge surprise to everybody in the room that this company is not as inflated as they thought. The brokerage firm was doing stupid things to keep it afloat, but the company was actually okay. Yeah, interesting. Kind of a nice little surprise. So once they figure that out, Morgan sends a bunch of the guys in the room off to Washington, D.C. Now Morgan gets to focus. It's annoying bank trust precedents. The, the eternal thorn in his side. Eternal thorn in his side. The ones who he truly has power over. And he goes into the West Room, and they have been arguing for hours. It's well after midnight. 
he walks in and says, you need to guarantee that you're going to bail out the weaker trusts. And I'm not asking for a pool. I'm asking for a guarantee, not a, I'll give you two million now. You're going to sign a contract saying this company will not fail. We will consistently pour money into them. And you're going to give a certain amount, but it's a deal, not a bailout. It's a succession of bailouts. Nothing happens. They just keep arguing. Just a boardroom of fancy chairs and a bunch of old dudes arguing. So Morgan says, figure it out, walks out of the room, and rather quickly, one of the bankers tries to leave the room, and the door's locked. Morgan has locked them in the room after giving them his demands. He does not care how they decide to do what he wants them to do. That's what they need to figure out. But they're not going anywhere until it's figured out. No, they're stuck there. It's 3 a.m. And he knows that if this doesn't get fixed, it's not going to get fixed. After allowing a few hours of sweating and deliberation, he walks back into the room. They're not particularly happy with him, but they're also terrified of him. And he again says... What are you gonna do? They start to waffle still. No, no, we don't, we don't know. We don't, we don't want to support our weaker brethren. And he says, yes, you do. Here, I even have a nice contract for you. I took the liberty of writing up this contract that you are going to sign. I'm actually not exaggerating what he's doing. This is what he's doing. He's, here's the contract. He's being like fake nice, apparently, in this situation. And he puts the contract down on the boardroom table. And he says, who will come sign this? No one comes to sign it. He goes, look, I even have a pen for you. And he holds the pen up. And then he decides to be a little bit more personal. He looks at the guy who is the unofficial leader of the bank trusts and says to the man, calls him by his name, says, come over here and waves with his arm in a pleasant voice. Come over here. I have a pen for you. You're going to sign. The guy moves a little bit closer. And he says, no, here, sign right here. Grabs him by the arm. Pulls him to the thing. That's hand to pen, pen to paper. It's hand to pen, pen to paper. As soon as that man signs, the dam breaks. The Everybody same domino floods. principle as the start of the story. Exactly. And they... They all sign it. They all sign it. They all bail out the bank. The last thing that's needed is the okay on U.S. Steel purchasing the Tennessee Coal Iron and Railroad Company. Which, if memory serves, they have to get from a government that has proven to be not a big fan of massive monopolized corporations recently. Probably my favorite historical character. He really existed, but I always think of history almost like it's a story. So my favorite historical person is Theodore Roosevelt. He's just a fascinating, if uh, belligerent, man. And There's a lot of belligerence in this story. There is. Roosevelt was very against the trust. In fact, um, Bruner and Carr blame him for the liquidity issues, for all of the economic foundation that caused the panic. They blame him uh, pretty directly alongside a variety of other things. But there's a long section in their book that I found interesting because it's so critical of him. But he was a loud, outspoken critic of these trusts. And you can tell he's kind of like, ha-ha, they're, they're struggling right now. So Morgan's lieutenants who know about the plan for U.S. Steel to buy the TCNI company, they rushed Roosevelt on Sunday evening. And then Roosevelt had just gotten back from killing animals in Louisiana, because that's what he did. Classic Roosevelt. The classic Roosevelt. And they demand a meeting with him. And he's, they're refused. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. We need you to say yes to this. The stock market opens in an hour. 
This is Monday morning. In comes James Garfield's son. Really? A wonderful connection to the previous episode. Yeah, wow. Who I is that coming. Roosevelt's um, main aide in this situation. They explain to Garfield's son the situation. His eyes get wide, and he, being a very intelligent man, goes, uh, you're meeting the president now. Right. He bursts in on the president, on Roosevelt, and demands, see these guys. And Roosevelt's like, why? Because they, they have something important to tell you. Roosevelt trusts his aide, says, okay, come, come on in. And they explain the situation. And apparently it was a very nerve-wracking for Garfield's son because he was outside, or the person telling the stories outside, and there's this like silent room. And there's like a 30-minute conversation, and there's a really good chance Roosevelt's just going to say no. Because that's the kind of thing he would do. But Roosevelt agrees. And in the press later, he pretty simply says, if he hadn't done that, it would have been a big mistake. He goes, I don't care about my antitrust busting. If this fails, the economy fails. No, the economy is already failing. But the situation is saved. When the stock market opens on Monday, the panic had ended. Because news of the bailout and the agreement of the trust presidents plus the acquisition of the TCNI by U.S. Steel produced that confidence. Now, the economy would be tanked for a solid year. You know, unemployment rates at 25% in some cities. People's livelihoods were ruined still. But it didn't develop into full-blown. Hemorrhaging was over. Hemorrhaging depression. This was an avoided depression. And anyone who studied economic history knows that from about 1870 to 1895, the U.S. was in one long depression. It's called the Long Depression. Thank you, historians. They were trying to avoid that again. And these problems would develop again in 1929 and produce the Great Depression. But it wasn't solved because Morgan was dead, in my opinion. He dies in, right. he dies in 1913, I believe. Oh, and he was dead in your opinion? <laughs> they weren't solved, in my opinion, right, because right, Morgan right. was I'm, dead. I'm aware. So what I want to start to segue out with is an interesting quote about Morgan um, that was actually written in McClure's magazine in 1901. So this is before the Panic of 1907 and how important this guy was. In the same article, there's an anecdote that when Morgan went and traveled to London in 1901, people took out insurance on his death. He, I think he was in ill health. He was already an older man. He was, he's 70 years old in this story. He's, he's, he's been around for a while. So this is a few years before he's saving New York City in 1907. People are taking insurance out on his death because if he dies, all the interests surrounding them are going to get less valuable. So people are gambling that on his voyage to London, he doesn't die or he does die. That, I've never thought of someone taking out insurance on me dying. Except for me having life insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking taking out insurance on somebody else's well being is a that that's that speaks more volumes than this story almost ever could about like the influence that he that he wields. So in nineteen oh one they distill who Morgan is in a very short but I think perfect quote. Mr. Morgan is to be considered not as a millionaire, but as a man of original force. Whether or not he has used his unquestioned genius to the highest purpose, whether or not he deserves all the credit or all the abuse that he has received, are questions the future alone will be able to answer. People hated him, and people knew they needed him. He was hated because he was vastly wealthy and would frequently fund buyouts of companies. 
he would cut workforces so that the companies would be more streamlined and efficient. But when there was a problem, people know who to turn to because he was, as they say, a man of original force. We know very little about him because he never wrote down any letters. He didn't write memoirs or a diary. We only get little snippets here and there from people who worked with him. He didn't talk, read, he did. So my question is, should men of Morgan's influence, power, and nature exist? I mean, in this story, it seems like, thank, thank God that they do. At least, I guess there is, there is an additional dynamic to it that would say, without people who possess the, 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 the drive, the capitalist impulses, all the, all the things of, of, of a Morgan, or to a much lesser extent, to an Otto or anybody else from like the Heinz family, that kind of thing, we wouldn't be in this position. Things like this wouldn't happen. Perhaps things like this wouldn't happen without the Morgans of the world. But that also begs the question of like, what, what does the world look like without people like this? And considering we have that world, how would we navigate large situations like this without somebody who can steer a ship? I think there's always going to be the Heinz brothers. I think they're always going to be far more numerous than someone as pinnacle as Morgan. I think how quickly the Heinz brothers drop out of the historical record and historical importance is a testament to the short-lived status of those who dream big, gamble, and lose. I think the fact that Morgan persists into the future is saying something about him. I mean, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank still exists. Yep. I think men like Morgan are inevitable. Given enough wealth, given enough organization and influence, there is some tendency of humanity to produce these emergent people. I don't know if we have one right now. There's plenty of industrialists and economic moguls, but it's hard to point at that one person who is this clearly in charge of the nation's economy. Or if they are, they fly very under the radar in a very intentional way. As Morgan did as well. But he had so much influence, he couldn't. I also don't think anyone in our modern era controls as much wealth as Morgan did. Like relative to the total amount of wealth. Yeah. I think proportionally, he was far more powerful than even a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett or um, Jeff Bezos. You know, these guys who control huge sums. It's not about having the most money. It's about having most of the money. What's really ironic is when Morgan died, he was nowhere near the wealthiest man in the United States. He was actually only middling rich. He didn't personally have that much money. He controlled money. And that's something I've noticed about a lot of the fabulously wealthy bankers, is though they do have lots of money, at a certain point, money must be meaningless beyond what it can do. I mean, after you get a certain amount of millions, it's not what the money is, it's what you can do with it. Yeah, it's what it facilitates. Buying another yacht, okay, cool. I I got a yacht, I like my yacht, I don't need another one. Right, but your name being able to influence the rise and fall of of like competing companies that's its own thing and there must be from morgan's past and what you can see if you research what he did there must be some enjoyment he got out of 
buying companies and streamlining them and cutting their workforce is because that efficiency to him must have been the main drive. What's interesting is that question of should men of Morgan's influence, power, and stature exist? The United States answered that question with a resounding no. Because of this situation, Morgan was hailed as a hero, as a savior, twice over, of the United States economy. But pretty quickly, the news didn't turn against Morgan, but turned against the concept of Morgan. There shouldn't be a man of this level of wealth and power and influence. One person should not control all this. And the government produced the Federal Bank, which is the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States, which is what did all the bailouts in 2008, 9, 10, um, is what currently pumps money into the economy whenever there's a recession, all of that. That was created because they wanted, they being the main bankers, they wanted someone who wasn't as powerful as Morgan ever again. Ironically, Benjamin Strong is the guy who led it, the guy who did all of the book checking in this story. Unfortunately, there was what was called the Peugeot Committee. Peugeot is the name of the Louisiana senator that was gathered to figure out what had happened behind the scenes here. Why did someone like Morgan have all this power? And even though they couldn't really come to a conclusion that there was a true syndicate of bankers all controlled by Morgan, because those men are far too intelligent to make it obvious, um, they did agree that they were going to set up the Federal Reserve System and basically grilled Morgan when he was like a 77-year-old man. And he dies shortly after. And a lot of people blamed it on the Peugeot Committee. They just put like so much stress on him. And yeah. Interesting. It's one of the few untouched photographs of him. Every photograph taken of him, he's, his nose is basically airbrushed. Mm. But you can actually see what Morgan looked like as an old man in those t- uh, testimonies. There's pictures of them. So in the sense of grandeur, J.P. Morgan was a bigger man in most senses of the word than everyone around him. He had the power, he had the will to act, and he did. When you compare him to someone like Charles Guiteau, there is no comparison. The comparison stops at the limits of Charles Guiteau's imagination. And yet both of these men clearly had a sense of themselves as something beyond the average person. Morgan's wasn't delusional, but he knew who he was and what he could do. As soon as the moment requested action, he was there. It sounds like we're lucky he was. I think so. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Footnotes. To learn more about the Panic of 1907, you can follow the link in our description to purchase the book used in the research of this episode. To discuss this episode, you can join us on Facebook, or for a glimpse behind the scenes, you can follow us on Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you'd give us a review on iTunes. It really helps the show out. Until next time, thanks for listening.